While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. thinking about when we make beer and how like i don't know like it, i feel like it brings me closer to the process and i feel like i'm really doing something and like making something and i feel accomplished after we've spent like six hours making beer uh-huh but i didn't grow those grains i didn't grow those hops i didn't like purify that water or i don't know how yeast works like <laughs> Just thinking about if I had to live in a world where I had to like grow food so I could have food, I would just roll over and die. Like I'm not, (laughs) I'm not equipped to deal with that. And that's what I wanted wanted to talk about because if you did a guest spot on Doomsday Preppers, it would just be (laughs) 22 minutes of silence with a blank screen just don't even like even just a shot of your tombstone even if you could live there wouldn't be pizza so what are you (laughs) what are you alive for welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and what are you alive for books they're gone you somebody else made them you didn't grow them you didn't grow books in your field nobody's gonna press that wood pulp into into (laughs) pages for you to scribble stuff on Andrew, I live in a world where the internet comes to me through the air. I don't know where anything comes from. <laughs> you don't even know where your internet comes from. I don't know where my emails are. You just know that there is. you have a router in your house and there's a password. And when you type in the password, you have internet. I don't even type in the password that often. My it's magic just... <laughs> box memorized it. Are you kidding me? It's just where the, is my internet made of? It's plastic. Where does plastic come from? I don't. What is plastic? I don't is even know. Is it ground up like, whale? Is that yeah, what plastic is? Is it like made out of sand? Is that? It's is that whale mixed with sand. That's what it is. That's plastic. It's whale glass. Is what it is. That was the original term. And then all the uh, tree huggers, those whale huggers. Yeah. So they rebranded. They rebranded. They, they call it plastic. <laughs> Basically, my point is there are so many assumed, there are so many things that I take for granted without even realizing that I'm taking them for granted. That if, and I really do, every once in a while, I think about, okay, well, if society broke down, like, what, like, I planted a garden one time, what would I remember from that that would help me survive in the new world order? <laughs> oh, no. And when I think I... about it, I just, I know I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I would be done. If the world goes down the toilet, there better be a bunch of boneless, skinless chicken breasts (laughs) nearby and some dry wood and uh, some matches, an infinite supply of matches. See, I don't even know how they raise the boneless, skinless chickens. I don't know what farm. That's a real, it must be a really comfortable farm because otherwise they would get cold. It's like piles of chicken jelly rolling around. (laughs) Maybe they can like, maybe they breed them like fish. Maybe it's in like water. Maybe they grow them in pools. Or maybe it's like the Matrix and they grow them in like little pods and absorb Oh, chicken batteries. Chicken batteries for your phone. (laughs) What do you have strapped to your iPhone? Is that like a cool like pattern? No, it's a chicken breast. No, it's just chicken breast. Generating energy. I took the bone out myself. <laughs> okay, so this is about books, right? Like this whole this thing, this whole thing <laughs> that we're doing. It was supposed to be until you showed me an image of a chicken internet future that I was going to live in. Chicken batteries. <laughs> Uh, so we talk about nonsense, and then we talk about the books that uh, 
one of us was meaning to read or okay. or in this week's case Andrew said I need to read something and he was at my house and I said here's a play by a famous playwright read it uh, and I think Andrew has all sorts of opinions about it. Andrew, what did you read this week? I mean, you just said that we talk about nonsense, which I think is appropriate for this week's oh, show. Come I read, on. I, re- <laughs> I read The Homecoming by Harold Pinter. Okay. Who I keep wanting to call Edward Pinter. And every time I do that during the show, I want you to just come down on me. Why Edward? Correct me. I don't know. It has the same number of syllables, I think. All right, and maybe you just can't believe that anyone's named Harold. Is that what you're? No, no, no. I told like there are tons of people named Harold. Edward and the orange crayon. (laughs) Can't keep it straight. Uh, So, so this guy Harold Pinter, like you gave me this, you gave me this play Mm -hmm. off of your bookshelf, and you had not read it. So this is really this is no, I had read it. Oh, you'd read it? I thought you'd said that you hadn't read it. I had read it once in college. Okay. I, I was going to say this is a book that you had been meaning to read. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I read it in college. I've uh, seen, I saw two other plays of his in college, and I worked on a play of his uh, right after I got out of college. I don't know how to talk about Harold Pinter without talking about college. That's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> That's that's something that's actually something I wanted to bring up a little bit is that um, we're going to talk about Pinter a little bit and especially like Pinter's style and what he's known for. But I feel like Pinter's plays just I mean, based on the one that I have read and the like, research that I've done about it, it seems like it, there are those kind of plays that are made to be appreciated by people who look at them academically if that makes any sense. And I'm I'm going to back that up by saying that this is the only Wikipedia article I have ever read that has cited page numbers in line as it discussed the points made in the play. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I I mean I've seen Shakespeare Wikipedia articles that do that where they I cite mean, maybe like, I mean maybe I just haven't read that no, many no, Wikipedia fair. articles about plays so <laughs> no well Pinter is Pinter is a giant in 20th century drama he is at least tell in me, English tell me like English tell language me, drama. tell me why lay it on okay me. well I can't I I mean telling you why will be will open up all sorts of debates about him I suppose that's fine tell me in your own words or like in your own thoughts why he is such a why his work is like such a touchstone. So he is the next logical or maybe logical is not necessarily the best word, <laughs> but he is a logical evolution of the work that Samuel Beckett was doing um, and other playwrights were doing uh, in the 20th century. But in terms of English speaking and English writing playwrights, you almost have two paths you can go down in the latter half of the 20th century in terms of the two big British playwrights, you have Tom Stoppard, who is very, um, is loquacious the word you use for people who talk a lot? I think so. Okay, great. Wait, um, like, very witty. Star Trek, loquacious is poor. <laughs> yeah, tending to talk a great deal, talkative. Great. Um, so Stoppard is this kind of, at least some of his best known works are kind of all encompassing. They, they, take a whole range of ideas and, and smash them together into high art and and people gripping intellectually with their emotions. Like that's a that's a big theme of his work. And characters are very verbose and quick witted and, and funny and just very British. Like, you know, just kind of <laughs> real British people saying real British stuff. Uh, and Stoppard's also very interested in different historical periods and, and stuff like that. The other way you go is to strip and strip and strip and strip away uh, layers of the drama. So Pinter kind of took that existential waiting for Godot land and put it in a bunch of seemingly real world scenarios. Like his characters are appear as if they're in, you know, real life context. Um, he was really early on classified as kind of a writer of the theater of the absurd, which includes folks like Beckett and includes Eugene Ionesco and even Edward Albee, uh, who we've talked about before on the show. But Pinter kind of sets a lot of his plays in one place 
and it's just people for the most part talking up until the point where maybe they don't talk uh <laughs> and there's lots of power plays and and uh betrayal it's the name of one of his plays that's also a, a pretty dominant theme in his work and um there's kind of this everything is loaded everything has subtext everything even down to a simple hello or the movement of a very simple prop means something to the character in that moment. It's it's right. not all loaded with symbolism, but it's all loaded with action, if that makes sense. Well, and there are, I mean, there's something that I noticed like right off the bat as I was reading this mm-hmm. that also tied into something that, that, I think people commonly say about Pinter's plays is there are mad pauses in this. Like it pauses all the time. If I did a control F for pause, the word pause in this uh-huh. play, I would probably break Microsoft word. Like, I think it just that, wouldn't be think, able to, <laughs> it wouldn't be able to do it. I think that play in particular has something like 200 or uh, 224 in the homecoming. It has if a you, lot. If you, add up the pauses and the long pauses and the silences. Right. And 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 if you like especially if you count the ellipses, yes, in in conversations as pauses because it kind of alternates between this very spare very like one line at a time style of communication and these big old blocks of text. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like these big old monologues from particular characters. But, I mean, so this play has a lot of pauses in it. And then one thing that is commonly said of Pinter is that what he is not saying or like what he is excluding from his plays is often as important or more important than what he is including. He's the Miles Davis of menace of did you, theatrical menace did you write that like two weeks ago and you're <laughs> no i kind of got going about five seconds ago and just okay. kind of jammed on it for a little That's while more impressive you finished your glad... thought yeah <laughs> yeah the the funny thing about the pinter pause is <laughs> the pinter pause pinter... the crazy new dance move that all the kids are doing in right. the in the discotheques Can... this summer <laughs> Like it's like a dubstep song, but right before the drop, everyone just pauses yeah, and there looks is no at each drop. other. You just wait. You just wait for the drop, and it never comes. Also, you I know want... the drops that he does do are as important as the drops that he doesn't do. Uh, I want a, a, an enterprising young listener to make a meme of Pinter pause. But it's, <laughs> Uh, it's Pinter surrounded by a bunch of kittens or something. Something cute with paws. That would be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty good. Um, the, who was it? Peter Hall, who is a knighted theatrical director from England. Um, he kind of broke it down as three dots is a hesitation. A pause is a fairly mundane crisis. And a <laughs> silence is some sort of crisis. <laughs> uh, and he said that Beckett started it and Harold took it over to express that which is inexpressible in a very original and particular way uh, and made them something which is his. And then years later, Pinter uh, responded with, these silences or pauses are all to do with what's going on. If they don't make any sense, then I always say, cut them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he, had, he at least put on record that when he's acted in his own plays, which he did occasionally, mm-hmm. he ended up cutting half of them. Because um, I assume that there's a way to approach that where if you get the intention of why that pause or that silence is on the page, then you don't necessarily need to like honor it to its full pregnant, awful silence. You can still use that as, as a bit of pivotal action or, or character thought. I don't know. I, sp- I suppose I get that, but then he puts himself in the position of cutting literally nothing from his own place. <laughs> Which is like, if, if it doesn't need to be there in the first place, and maybe it depends on the people who are performing it. Like, yeah, maybe probably. some people can sell some of these lines in a way that implies the pause without requiring the pause. But if you, if if it ends up that you don't need it in the first place, then why put it in there? Yeah. So this all goes, this all kind of falls under the general um, umbrella of Pinter-esque. 
<laughs> which is, you know, he joins the elite, like, Orwellian, Dickensian, Kafkaesque. Except nobody knows what Kafkaesque means. Really. Well, just like Pinter-esque, I think. Um, and it's a mix of, of that kind of unspoken meaning that is running throughout the, the text, as well as this um, thing that was dubbed the comedy of menace in its time, where uh, I think the exact quote from the co- from the corner of the phrase was, uh, comedy enables the committed agents and victims of destruction to come on and off duty to joke about the situation while oiling a revolver, which I think is a pretty good. It's a reference to uh, The Birthday Party, I believe. It's another sure. Harold Pinter play. Um, so I think his plays are funnier than they than they tend to sometimes be treated. Uh, some of them, anyway. I mean, there but, is there is some humor in here, which... Do we want to start talking about the play? I'm sorry. We talked about style without even really talking about Pinter himself. No, I think... I mean, I, th- Pinter's style looms so large over... Great. Pinter himself that I think we're okay and I imagine that you know I mean we're going to keep doing this podcast forever so I imagine that we're going to come back to him at some point if the internet doesn't run out of chicken by then we'll yeah let's keep going <laughs> the chicken is powering basically everything <laughs> as we previously established I mean we're about books but we're also about science <laughs> just really good provable science <laughs> so let's well we'll circle back to pinter if we have time people should know that he won the nobel the nobel prize for literature in 2005 a couple years before he died uh and that he also received the legion of honor in france uh as well as several other awards at, when all of his plays were written mm-hmm. um so he he's been canonized to a certain degree even right, while and he, he was still alive. Yeah, and he I mean he was born in 1930, died in 2008, and mm-hmm. um he was pretty active through all the periods of his life, which is which is not something that's super common among some of the authors that we've talked about. So he yeah. had like the he had like an early period which I think arguably encompasses like the birthday party which is 57 through the homecoming which is 64. Yes. And then like a middle period in like the 70s and 80s. And then he was, you know, he has plays like The Trial in 93 and Sleuth in 2007. Uh, yeah, which... and his last play, one of his last plays was Celebration, which I've read, which is a weird play. Um, well, yeah, no, I, I would assume. <laughs> yeah. But he's kind of, there, there are critics who have tried to demarcate his periods. And then there are plenty of others coming back and saying, well, to demarcate them kind of robs them of some of their connective tissue and oh, yeah. thematically um, um, gives him less credit. He's also he's also a pretty widely known political activist, um, conscientious objector after World War II. I don't remember what war that was um, in London. And he uh, was a very outspoken um, critic of American foreign policy. He would be uh kind of up in arms about anything that was going on in the world today, I think. <laughs> that's that's fair. I mean you you should be, I think. Um yeah. not to not to go into that realm, but just to tie it to Pinter himself. Like he was livid about all of our involvement in Iraq and even going, you know, the Gulf War and everything. He did, it's just, he just it's one of those situations where no matter what you believe, I think you can find enough to be upset about that it just makes you shut oh, down. Oh, that's fair. Okay. I don't know. No. Speaking um, of so, upset, let, why don't you tell me yeah. about the homecoming? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit you with the plot synopsis first. As best you can. Even though I don't know that it's the most important thing that's going on because sure. Pinter is like... I don't think that he is especially celebrated for his tightly plotted narratives. Mm. All right, so mm. well, okay, you can you can make some little mouth noises at me, but I don't this <laughs> this play in particular. <laughs> this you play in can particular make some little na- mouth noises at me. Come on, <laughs> let's get all this play British in particular about it. Does, does not seem super plot driven. Yeah, it's fine. So there is um. <clears throat> There's this house, an old house in London, sort of rundown. Yep. And there 
are um, three, well, four members of a family living in it. There's a uh, Max who is like the patriarch and he's an older guy and he's retired and he's a butcher and he hates everything. Um, there is Lenny who is his second son, I believe. And um, Lenny is the subtext, I guess, is that he's a pimp. Yeah, um, sure. He, I mean, the text just, I mean, he's an avid newspaper reader. If, if the, if the text is anything to go by also. And um, he, he tends to be, I think the second most talkative character in the play, like he gets in sparring matches with Max for no particular reason. Kind of. A How lot. old is Max? Um, Max is. I don't. He's he's old. I want to say he's uh, he's seventy. He's a man of seventy. Oh God! Getting the sparring match, the seventy-year-old. Well, I mean, on. like a, a figurative with words sparring oh, match. Not the like, way you bill- the way you were billing him. I totally believed that. Sorry. Would... No, there's. I mean, there's this other guy, the youngest son named Joey. Oh, Joey. Who is, hey. who is training to be a boxer? How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm boxing. How you doing? How you doing? I've got my own show. How you doing? It ran for what? Three seasons? How I you can't doing? believe Joey ran for three seasons. All right. You know that, that rage going. mad. You Keep know that, I'm just getting you, getting you riled up to talk about <laughs> Edward Pinter. There is <laughs> there's Sam, um, Max's younger brother, the uncle of all the all the other boys in the house. Okay. And um and then the the people who come home the people who the play is named for are teddy the oldest son and his wife ruth okay um and and those are all the player the players who show up in the play i mean there are other important characters too that who are who like factor into it but have passed before the events of the play there is um jesse who was uh max's wife and the father, I mean the mother, <laughs> the mother of all the boys, and then there's uh, Max's friend McGregor. Okay, that's a great who name. Comes up, yeah. Who who is sort of brought up as like a positive example, I guess. Like usually Max brings him up when he wants to compare somebody unfavorably to somebody else. Okay. Um. All right. So there are all these there there are all these people living in this house. It's Max and Lenny. And Joey and Sam hanging out. And then Teddy and Ruth, who live in America, come home late one night. And it's sort of apparent that they are not on the same wavelength. Like, like between wants, them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Ruth, want, Ruth wants to go out exploring or like she wants to take in some air. And Teddy's like, hey, just let's go to bed. Let's just... Why you let's just go to bed. I want to go to bed. Let's go to bed. Let's go and to a bed keep... in the house where no one knows that we're here. But his Does... bedroom is untouched, as is made abundantly clear in the text of the play. Okay, that's fine. So Teddy goes to bed and then Lenny comes downstairs and starts talking to Ruth. Uh-oh. And pretty soon they start getting into some innuendos. Great. <laughs> and then Ruth goes to bed. <laughs> And then the next morning, Max and Lenny and like everybody's hanging out, and um, Max is like, "Why, why are you home? When did you get home? You're just sleeping in our house, and you brought this whore." Oh man! Because <laughs> he, he keeps referring to Ruth as like a prostitute, basically, and, and it is only after many insults that Teddy tells max that she is his wife and that they've been married for six years and that they have three kids oh man Um, okay like later later on i guess max seems to make his peace with ruth i don't know um and it just it just kind of deteriorates from there like lenny and joey both keep making like increasingly weird and explicit passes at ruth until they're just like making out with her and how does she um, seem to feel about that she seems fine with it okay (laughs) there's they're like making out with her joey 
goes up to his bedroom with her and they are up there for like two hours, even though they don't go whole hog, which is the way that the play puts it. Gross. <laughs> which I take it to mean they do not get they do not hit a home run. I don't know what base they get to, but Well, it's cricket, they're British, so the bases aren't the same. Oh yeah, it's like I don't like soccer. I don't know what Well it's probably up. no, it's probably cricket. It's like because Pinter was a really good cricket player. Uh that's not a thing I just made up. That's a real thing. Oh, that's um, neat. So there's good probably th- things about runs or sticky wickets or bowlers. They did not bring up anybody's sticky wicket, but the point is the ashes. That Joey's wicket definitely <laughs> did not get sticky. <laughs> and they all all the members of the family, like Max, I'm just gonna keep on going. Max and Lenny and Joey, I don't know, like they start talking about like wanting to keep Ruth there uh-huh. and have her live with them, but they don't have a lot of money. So she'll have to pay her own way. And the way she's going to pay her own way is by prostituting herself just for a few hours, just at night, just for a few hours, just a little bit. No big deal. Just, yeah. just, just a couple hours. It'll be night. fine. And Teddy is like, I can't, tell if i'm supposed to be reading like some kind of some kind of like i'm not gonna let you bother me attitude into his interactions with max and lenny and joey because he at the by the end of the play he just leaves for america and he leaves ruth there (laughs) oh to live with the rest of the family and to i guess become a prostitute um Okay. And she is like, she is obviously not super into him. And as he is leaving, she calls him Eddie. <laughs> what? Which I laughed at a lot. <laughs> but so so she's in this position where she is like, I guess, attending to the needs of these men in this house. Like the sexual needs of Lenny and Joey and also the need for Max to be taken care of by his, his wife who is dead, who he's mentioned a whole bunch of times. And, um, but like at the same time, Ruth is kind of running the show. Like she's, she is making out with people and then she gets up and she's like, I'm hungry and thirsty. Somebody get me some food and a drink. And everybody does. And at the end, she's just kind of sitting in the center of all of them. And the last like run of the play is Max insisting that he's not too old and for her to kiss him. Uh-huh. And that and that's how the play ends. That's yeah, and play. isn't isn't someone's like head in her lap? Like isn't it like total like I think Joey she's like running her hands through Joey's hair or something similar. Yeah. So she's the Queen Bee at the end. Kind of, I guess. Except for that part where she just has the like moonlight as a prostitute. But does she? If she's I mean, in charge of all those dudes, it's it's one of the things that is left ambiguous. Like, I mean, I was I was reading, I was researching this play and reactions to it, and there are, I mean, there are arguments that Teddy and Ruth are not even actually married and they don't even actually have kids because there's no like concrete evidence of any of that in the text. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, there's a lot of people reading stuff into things and also trying to make sense of things that don't, that like aren't explained. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, I don't know what to make of this. Like, like you're, you're in the theater Illuminati, right? Like you're, you're a member of this community. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I were a member of the theater Illuminati. I'm not sure what that means. I think it just means I get to hang out with Neil Patrick Harris. I don't know right, for certain yeah, yeah. what that is. I just sure. I I feel like there are plays that are made to make I don't know, they're like like if I saw this play and I wanted to seem super smart, I'd walk out and I would act like I got it. Yeah, but... And I would act like disdainful of anybody who was like, what just happened to me? What did I just see? No, but I think there... Do, I think, do you understand? I don't know. I, I think I understand what you're going for, but I, it sounds like BS. 
But the argument in favor of work like this, right, is that there isn't something to get for the audience. There are things that the audience is supposed to see and and recognize in themselves. There's behavior to see and and be affected by. Um, If you... What is happening in those pauses and silences, I'm sure, are a myriad of reactions to stimulus or, and stimuli between those people. That yeah, I mean, often, often it's it happens when like somebody asks a question and it is not answered, and so the person who is speaking begins to fill in blanks. Yes, 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 and just proceed down a, a road that they themselves have built. <laughs> Well, without any without any reaction from the person who they're talking to, and I think that is critical to to Pinter's view of the world. I, I mean, I don't, don't want to say that it's like some all all encompassing thing, but the type of behavior he seemed most interested in exploring is kind of the unpredictable ways that we fill the world in front of us. If that makes sense, like we don't necessarily know what's going to happen next, but we got to do something and well, here's what happens, I guess. And then in his plays, mostly bad stuff happens and, <laughs> and then it doesn't always mean anything. Um, there's a quote. Oh, I wish I could. Oh, I'm going to try and pull it up. There's a quote from a childhood friend of his um, that talked about their like their world after World War II like they they saw something in how kind of terrible the world was and they just kind of agreed that they were just going to keep on living anyway what was it um this is from a guy named Henry Wolf uh he said you know, atomic bombs had incinerated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Cold War was being manufactured to keep the American economy going. What lay in store for us looked pretty bleak. We could prove to be the last generation. No future, no children. Us. Did we agonize over this? Not a bit of it. By silent agreement, we put the day-to-day world to one side. Once we breathed its infected air, we were goners. Um, Life is beautiful, but the world is hell, Peter Pinter said recently. Um, there's this kind of sense of, like... The world is terrible, but I guess we're going to be alive anyway. So we might as well do something. Might as well do something. Uh, yeah, that that I feel like that kind of taps into something we talked about um not last week, but the week before with um with Feynman. Yeah, yeah. About his I don't know, his listlessness after the bomb and after the war. Mhm. And just you know, seeing all the stuff that's bad about the world and then deciding to pick up and carry on anyway. And, and yeah, and, and I don't think that Pinter had the same ebullience of spirit. No, 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 no. It was not. It was not the same. No, it's not. I'm just. I'm just saying that these, these are different reactions to what. Oh yes, is essentially like similar similar stimuli. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be made of out of Pinter's experience of uh, the Blitzkrieg. He was living in London when when the Blitz happened, and he. Uh, was evacuated out of London and then returned when he was a little bit older. And I think that kind of made him a a very, for lack of a better word, kind of aggressive pacifist for the rest of his life. Sure. Uh, as an activist. There's a play of his called The Hot House that's all about kind of people in power and how they trod over the weak as they pursue their own power like at each other's expense. Basically, like, the people at the top of the ladder clawing to make it up that extra inch of the ladder. Yeah. You know. And, and, and I mean, you can you can pick up some of that in this play. Like, it's 1964, so England, like, or, you know, they, they've... The war is over, and it has been for quite some time, mm-hmm. but the signs of it still linger. Like, he mentions a... Like a rubble, just like a pile of rubble at some point in the play. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, it, I mean, there's still, there are, at this point, there are still those left over from the war. Like, even even then, like 20 years after the fact, they're still kind of rebuilding and still, 
it's still present in their minds even if they're not thinking about it or talking about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, one of the things the Nobel Committee said when they gave him the award, they talked about his plays as, as stripping drama back to the essential, plays in an enclosed space with unpredictable dialogue and lots of ex- and examinations of power dynamics. Do you, that kind of seems to be what you were talking about earlier of characters kind of getting away from themselves even in the moment if they don't know what to do next. Yeah, there's a lot of like with Max, Max kind of browbeats Sam a lot. Is that a verb? I mean, I know Sam browbeat? is brow, browbeaten by... Yeah, you can browbeat someone. All I mean, right, you can yeah, punch Max... someone in the face, but you can also like <laughs> browbeat them, I think. Max browbeats Sam a lot and kind of makes fun of his job because he's a, he's a chauffeur. And he does not like, he does not work that often. Like he has some scheduled pickups to make, but he is, he is in the house kind of a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of, you know, there are the fights between Max and Lenny. There's Joey who just does not, he, he wants to, he wants to be the very best. Like no one ever was, <laughs> but he just, he generally doesn't talk a lot in the play. Actually. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have very many lines of dialogue. Okay. And then, you know, and then there's and then there's Ruth who does have conversations with everybody, but often the men who are talking with her I guess kind of project other women onto her or something. Like they they Yeah. They say things and they start reacting according to assumed reactions more often. I think that like that's what I was talking about when I was saying um, some of the like a lot of those pauses are people answering their own questions or like assuming answers to questions and then just going on with whatever monologue they were in the middle of. Well, and I don't know the last time you took part in any sort of uh, interview where things were at stake. Not like just a like, hey, I'm interviewing a person because I'm interested in their stuff, but like a job interview or sitting in on a job interview. If yeah. one side of that conversation isn't going, the other side goes nuts. Yeah, that record doesn't stop spinning. <laughs> people will just blabber because they they're gonna say the right thing eventually they think you know or not or they just start they just say the wrong thing and then they continue on to say worse even wronger things Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. see this is what pinner's this is what pinner's all about man he's into it he's into the life stream is that a thing i don't know okay <laughs> into a very negative life stream i think yeah um yeah like that's a that's a deal with the homecoming basically like it's not very long no but it's yeah it's about like the power dynamics between these people and what goes unspoken and i I, and i really hope we were talking about it before the show but i really hope this doesn't become one of those episodes where we just kind of share our reactions to a work and then fans of that work later get upset at all the stuff we got wrong. Like I'm fully accepting that I am not getting all of this. That's fair. But, but you also know, read like a I, play. We've talked about that before too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't yeah, I read something that is meant to be performed. And even like I mean, like you said, when Pinter himself put this play on, he like cut half the pauses, which seems like a pretty big it's a pretty big difference. I don't know. Two of the things to to know about Pinter in particular is he contradict he liked to, contra- to contradict even his biggest fans. So like he was labeled as a writer of the comedy of menace. Like, do you kind of get how that might apply to this, Andrew? I mean, I know that's my least favorite Star Wars movie. Oh my good gracious! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I just got a picture of like Eddie Murphy as C three PO in my head. I don't know I why that Eddie the- Murphy as Darth Maul would be better. <laughs> I would see an all Eddie Murphy Phantom Menace. <laughs> I would watch that so hard. Oh, man, the return of the Doolittle. <laughs> um, yeah, Revenge yeah, of the Norbith. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's it's funny in a dark kind of way, but you're waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole yes. time. Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be funny in like it's audacious in how nasty people are being or like clearly let's laugh until until we're sure that person can't get away with that behavior anymore. 
and then they don't. Um, mm-hmm. But he kind of later said that uh, he didn't like, he was tired of the word menace. Um, and then he, he kind of even recounted that statement. He said, when I said that I was tired of menace, I was using a word that I didn't coin. I never thought of menace myself. It was called comedy of menace quite a long time ago. I never stuck categories on myself. But if what I understand the word menace to mean is certain elements that I've employed in the past in the shape of a particular play, then I don't think it's worthy of much more exploration. <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of, you know, and he leaned into that style of, of character and behavior, but later went on to, to other stuff, especially as he got a little more political in his writing. Right. Um, the other thing that I love is the weasel under the the cocktail cabinet, I think is the I think is the phrase. Someone asked him what his plays were about, and he flippantly said the weasel under the cocktail cabinet, and then got all mad that people were taking him seriously. <laughs> but it kind of also like is a beautiful metaphor that sort of applies. Yeah, like what is the thing that you can't see but is there? Exactly. While that it's about, and it, and it's great that it's a cocktail cabinet because it's like. It implies people are all, drinking all the time. Yeah, people are drinking all the time, and it, and it implies some sort of kind of general accepted behavior, and that there's something underneath all of that that's not supposed to be there, that's going to ruin everything and oh, get I'm, whiskey I'm everywhere. Just knowing knowing the limited amount of stuff I do about Pinter, I'm sure he would be like mad at you for reading as much as you have into that. Into what is almost certainly a throwaway thing that he did not think about before. But it was. He said but it. it's apt. That's the. Best it is apt. No, it. but 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 is it apt because it's apt or because we've twisted it into being apt? If we've learned anything from Pinter, it's that language can be anything. It's weaponized. <laughs> all language is weaponized. It is both defense and offense at all times. Even the words you don't say, Andrew. Oh God, there are so many words I'm not saying to you right now. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> long pause silence podcast <laughs> so that's the that's the homecoming that's the homecoming yeah i mean it's not not a long play not a long episode and we are sorry for the late recording this week but um you know we were we were alternatively celebrating and working over the weekend craig had a birthday he's 28 oh stop it everybody congratulate him on being one step closer to 30 go drink a weasel under a cocktail cabinet i like i'm to, gonna uh, i'm gonna be 29 like a month from now so i'm get it was a lot more it was it, it was a lot more fun to make fun of people for being 30 when i was 23 i'm just gonna <laughs> throw that out there uh i don't want to make fun of i want to thank all the people who gave us great feedback on last week's episode our choose your own adventure episode. yeah that, that was, last really, week? was really great oh my god uh, Sean and Eric and Mayumi and Annie and Renee and CR. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Terry and J Deep and Robbie Z. Uh, we got all sorts of great feedback uh, on the episode. And we're not sure when and if we'll do something like it again. But it's good to know that people enjoyed it. And, and we, we're glad you had plenty of you had a, as good of a time listening yeah, as we did yeah. making it. And the the general consensus is that like it was it was fun, but it's far enough from the spirit of the of of the show that we're doing now that maybe it's it doesn't fit as like an all the time thing. So, I mean, we haven't really talked about it a ton, but I could see it being like a bonus episode kind of thing, or like a, we are super busy, we need to record something <laughs> episode, or even like a its own like side thing. It's a sometimes food. Know. It's a sometimes yeah. food. You choose your own adventures. Is sometimes food. Did yeah. I, Susanna? I got my I got my paper copy of the book like three days ago. <laughs> uh huh. And Susanna's been reading it, and and apparently when you say that you don't want to go into the house at the beginning, it opens up. A whole new world. Oh snap! We might need to so. do a bonus episode where we just go right back in to Chimney Rock. Right back to Chimney Rock. <laughs> uh, if you want to, if you went and read uh, the mystery of Chimney Rock, and you have more stories of uh, your adventures in that house to tell us, you can tweet them to us at twitter.com slash overdue pod, or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overdue pod. Uh, we'll also accept them in email form, uh, overdue pod at gmail.com. 
Yeah, emails are technically acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, we have a website up at overduepodcast.com. Um, up there, we have a list of all of our episodes. I know we're like up in the 70s or something. Now we're close. To, this is episode 79. So whew, getting up there. The oxygen's getting thin up here on Podcast Mountain. Um, we, we have, yeah, we have all the episodes that we've done. We have um, RSS and iTunes links that you can use to subscribe to the show, get new episodes automatically. And we also have Amazon links to the books that we have read and in an ideal world, the books that we are going to read and that, that section's looking a little sparse right now. Um, and if you click those links and order the books, if you want to read along or if listening to us talk about a book has inspired you to tackle it yourself, um, we get a little bit of a cut of that, which helps defray our costs for books and for web hosting and for all that fun stuff. So, yeah. And I think I think that's pretty much it. Uh, per listener suggestion, I think it was Annie suggested we do some uh, Halloween-y themed Ooh, yeah. uh, stories and books. Uh, since next week will be next week will be the end of September, but I'll start it early. I'm going to read the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, excellent! Uh, for next week. Yeah, so maybe we might keep with a spooky theme all month. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. In October, the most pumpkin-flavoredest month that there is. That was a long <laughs> pause. <laughs> what we didn't say in that pause is way more important than what we did say. Um, anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. And um, we'll be back next Monday with Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And in the meantime, everybody try to be happy. I spent half an hour reading Dota patch notes today. Dude. <laughs> dude. Dude. I'm listen, listen, listen. Dude. I we I came here under the guise of wanting to report <laughs> wanting to record a podcast with you, but actually I think we need to have an intervention. <laughs> nope. Nope. Well, imagine if Miyamoto came to you and said, "Hey, give me that Pokemon cartridge," and he took it from you. That, oh, there's and so he, many problems he, already with what you're saying. And okay. he like tapped it with a magic wand, and then he gave it back to you. And all the Pokemon behaved differently, but just slightly differently, like not real differently, but just enough to like completely change how you play Pokemon. I am not gonna lie; that's basically what happens every time a new Pokemon game comes <laughs> out. So that's what is happening now. <laughs> Except there's more people playing Dota for like large amounts of money than they're and they're in tournaments right now. I, and all of a sudden the game is different. Don't besmirch Pokemon the Pokemon com competitive community. I'm I'm not. I'm just saying that I've it's at least it is it is higher profile right now anyway. The types of bounties that these people are pulling in. They've re they changed the map, Andrew. So, they changed are, something about the map. Are there people competing like right now? Like, is there are there competitions going on even as we speak? Yeah, all or? the time, all the time. So uh, there you, might not be... we've we've entered a realm where somebody could have gone to bed thinking that they were like number one Dota champ, and then they wake yes. up and they read the patch notes and they're like, "Oh no, yep, this game is different." Yep. And they're they and they're like in the it. middle of a tournament. Imagine if in the middle of a tennis tournament, Rafa Nadal, he's feeling real good. He's doing great. He's got his Is top. He spin. like a tennis guy. He's a tennis guy. Yeah, he's a big he's tennis playing guy. Playing McEnroe, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> okay. Him and Pete Sampras are <laughs> okay. two on oneing John McEnroe. <laughs> and then they go to bed and they wake up and the net's a different height and the other guy's racket's made of solid gold. And they can only hit balls made of rubber, and the other guy hits balls made of fire. 
and <laughs> it's not a rectangle anymore. It's a rhombus, and the judge is a robot, and it you play in the sky. Like, that's... This is a big match, You and your, like, rhomboid tennis fantasy. <laughs> yeah, and in the middle of the match, like, they throw energy drinks onto the field, and you can drink them for bonus points. But these energy drinks are new, and they're random, and they appear every two minutes. And sometimes if you drink one, it's actually poison. It's like a poison <laughs> drink. <laughs> and you get really small. <laughs> so, yeah, they they... I don't think they broke it, but they definitely are changing all. It's a huge, it's a huge. See, I think that I think that kind of thing separates the men from the. Well, no, that's that's a terrible. I don't want to say men from the boys. That's stupid. It it separates the people who are really good at the game's core mechanics from the people who have just memorized everything really good. No, you're you're correct. It it changes as much as it loads me to say these words. It changes the meta. That's yeah. If you... because it's not just about the raw hero mechanics. It's like the whole how do you kind of like deck building games, right? It like it changes what synergizes with what and and all that kind of stuff. No, I mean I'm I'm gonna take it back to Pokemon because that's that's what I know. But <laughs> I mean, like every day, I wish I could go back to the time when I could just like play it without thinking about. What is gonna like optimize my Pokemon for the competitive game, which I have never played and probably never will? <laughs> yeah, but you gotta make sure you get the good. Pokemon. Just like, what if I run into somebody and they throw down and it becomes like a <laughs> like a step up style, like step up to the street style tournament, except with Pokemon? <laughs> what if you ran into Griffin McElroy and Griffin McElroy said? Hey Andrew, I'll be your friend. I'll be your best I'll friend. I'll be your if you great good pal if if you can bring the pain, <laughs> Pokemon wise. <laughs> the Pokemon pain, Pokey pain. <laughs> <laughs>